So welcome to Grace Community Church. Yet again, uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, our teaching pastor, uh, Brad Talley, uh, he is out of town. So I have the privilege of preaching this morning. Uh, my name is David. I'm the creative arts director here at Grace Community Church. Um, and so since we've had children in worship with us for the last month, I'd actually like to have all the kids who are in here to come and sit with me on the floor. So if you're first through fifth grade and you're still hanging out here, or even kindergarten, uh, please come and sit on the floor with me. Sneak away from your parents as you need to. All right, if you have an answer to one of the questions that I ask, then raise your hand so I can call on you and we can all hear you, okay? So, thank you guys so much for being such good listeners, really, all month. Because um, you've been in here busy coloring and drawing, and it's really great, actually, to have you guys with us in here. So, I hope that you've enjoyed it, too. Um, so, do you remember what book Pastor Brad has been preaching from? Landon, from Hebrews. We've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. We've had a couple people jump in and do some other things. So we've been in Hebrews. So I want you to think real quick, of all the people that you know, who do you think knows the most about the Bible? Yes. Pastor Brad. Pastor Brad. That's the easy answer. Who else? That's a good one, though. Who else? Jesus definitely knows the most about the Bible, and you do know him, so technically that is the right answer. Uh, who else that you know that might be in the room that you think knows the most about the Bible? Yes, Judah? Who do you think? Jesus, that's a good answer. Yeah. Your mom and dad. There we go. What do you think? Me? Well, I hope so, but we'll find out, I guess. Um, so, some of you... We're at TVR this week. I see your t-shirts. And it's so beautiful there. Some of you have been on vacation the last couple months. Um, Maybe you went to the beach. Like, I love reading the Bible when I'm outside in the sunlight. So where do you like to sit and read your Bible or talk about the Bible? Yeah. On your bed. That's a good place. Anybody who hasn't answered yet? At the dinner table, that's not weird at all. And in Daddy's chair is a really good place. Yeah. In your room. Where else do you guys like to sit or read or go to read your Bible? Anybody else? Go ahead. Your bonus room. Awesome. Yeah, that's it. Your porch. That's a good one, too. This morning, I'm going to be teaching from a story from the book of Luke. So, before I read it... Um, It's actually, this is about two folks who are on a walk, and they end up talking about the Bible while they're on their walk. It ends up being the best Bible story they ever hear. So, some of you guys have heard this before, but I want to read just a bit from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Because when the two folks from this morning's sermon, when they talked about the Bible with a stranger who was walking with them, this, this is what they learned. 
It's also on the screen. The heavens are singing about how great God is. And the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they're speaking to us. That's from Psalm 19. Because see, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to, to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us to know him, to make our hearts sing. So the way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too. And he wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some of you think the Bible is a book of rules, uh, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have rules in it, uh, and they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it, uh, but as you'll find out if you read it, Some of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, see, see, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and came to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. So this morning as I'm preaching, I'm going to explain how Jesus talks about this missing piece. He talks about himself. So is it okay if I pray for all of you guys real quick? Okay, let's pray. God, I thank you very, very much for these children. I pray that we as a church family would never hesitate to bring them to you. I pray that as they sit with their parents this morning and continue to worship through coloring and through listening and making good choices, that you be glorified as we worship as a whole church family. Thank you for the brief month that this has been to have them with us. And I pray that we would, as grown-ups, model worship for them consistently. So I pray that, again, they would be blessed and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, boys and girls. You can head back to your seats. So, hello again, grown-ups. You can stop checking Facebook and refreshing the church Pokestop now. Instead, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke 24, or, or swipe there if you're on your phone. 
Exalt the Lord, establish believers, engage the world with the gospel. This is why Grace Community Church exists. We believe that the commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 is fulfilled as we worship Jesus, who is the Lord, as we establish one another in the teaching of Jesus and the scripture, as we engage our community, our neighborhoods, our cities, if you can call Coates a city, and ultimately the world with this good news. Because see, the church is, church is not the building, it's the people. I've said many times over the years um, that you didn't come to church this morning. Instead, you gathered to be reminded that we are the church. If we believe that Jesus, what he said is true and what the scriptures testify, then we are the church. And then we're gathered to be sent. So when we gather, we exalt the Lord, we establish one another, and then we're sent to exalt the Lord and and establish then out in the world by engaging. And actually the church, which is gathered and scattered, is still the body of Christ in both contexts, whether gathered or scattered. So as we've gathered over the last year, pretty much, we've been working through the book of Hebrews uh, with a few standalone sermons here and there. So since Brad is in the home stretch for Hebrews, like preaching from the last chapter next, I decided to take a brief excursus and kind of preach from a text that's one of my favorites of all time. Um, I'm still preaching from a text, though, rather than a starting point of like a topic or, or a theme. That's because at Grace Community Church, uh, we believe in expository preaching. Because we believe that this approach uh, that God has called us to when we gather, we think it's Christocentric. Uh, it includes biblical exegesis and then exposition. So the Bible is the means that God has chosen and preserved to communicate to us. So, thankfully, it's not up to our reading ability and comprehension skills. Thank God He has given us His Holy Spirit, who sovereignly and effectively illuminates the Scripture for us. So when Brad or any of the elders or staff are preaching on a Sunday morning, although we definitely endeavor to proclaim winsomely and creatively, it's not the force of my rhetoric that saves. It's the power of God Himself at work through his word and his spirit. So preachers kind of position themselves as conduits for God to speak, or or as ambassadors speaking on behalf of the king of kings. So this morning, I want to consider revelation and response as as a model for the gospel, a model for theology, and, and a model for worship. So for those of you wondering what gospel means, it's simply the announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ for his glory, for our benefit, and ultimately for the benefit of the whole world. So there's a a couple ways to summarize this news. Often we've taken this narrative approach of creation, fall, redemption, restoration to kind of give anchor points to the movements of God's big story that we just talked about. Uh, When it comes to revelation and response, however, There's another way of summarizing that Greg Gilbert has proposed. It's this. It's God, man, Christ, response. You can summarize the gospel that way when you're sharing it with somebody. God, man, Christ, response. Because see, God, he created. He created for his glory. He created us for relationship. He initiated that relationship. And then man or mankind, humanity, chose and chooses our own way. 
And then that sin has broken all of our relationships in this horrible irony. And we can't fix it, and we can't fix ourselves. So enter Christ. God made a way to atone for every sin, to fix the relationships with him and with other people, if we believe that Jesus has been resurrected, if we repent of our sins, and if we uh, trust completely in God for our salvation. So belief, repentance, trust, those are the response of a Christian. And really, you can't hear this news about Jesus. You can't hear about what he taught. You can't hear about how he died, and much less how he was raised from death, without responding in some way. I mean, even a dismissive whatever is still a response. When God reveals himself, we cannot help but respond. So we see this model in the gospel, we see it in theology. Uh, Theology or or the study of God. Because God has revealed himself completely in Jesus. And this is testified in the scripture, God's written word. So when this revelation is encountered, it provokes response. So for instance, we'll consider the book of Revelation. Or no, excuse me, that would be a whole other sermon series. Let's consider the book of Romans. Uh, Paul is laying out a really rich theology in the book of Romans. Starting from chapter 1 all the way through 11, it's this theology. It's bam, 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 point, point, point. Uh, deep thing, deep thing, deep thing, confusing thing, amazing thing about God. And then, in Romans 11, it's still not the end of the book, he has to stop talking about theology to respond and praise God. So look at what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the revelation of God in theological reflection, it provoked this response. For a little, a simpler illustration, when, when I stare into my daughter's eyes and she gives me her mischievous smile, the revelation of how beautiful she is provokes me to say to her, Clara, you are so beautiful. And she usually responds, I know, Daddy, at this point. (laughs) But when we explore theology, when we behold God's beauty, the power, the majesty, the mercy, the mystery, we're provoked to respond. Just like Paul here in Romans. Revelation and response is a model for understanding worship, too. And I've talked about this before. Both corporate worship, what we're, what we're doing right now, and personal worship. In fact, the last time I preached, I tried to show how our worship gatherings as a church body, they're a time to remember rightly what God has done, and then respond to Him in ways that are prescribed in His revelation, in the Word. When we gather, it's a time to remember rightly what God has done and then respond to him in ways that he's laid out in his revelation. So, a theologian, Dan Block, gives this definition for worship. I had to study this in class. So, true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign. 
in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in according, accordance with his will. So he's got some thick language going on here, right? Uh, but notice our key words are here. In a theological understanding of, of worship, we respond to God's gracious revelation. And we respond in accordance with his will. So sometimes, sometimes in corporate worship or even in your, your life of, of worship, right in the middle of an experience of worship, God may grant a clearer picture of himself. Or you may feel his love towards you in a way that you haven't in a while. And then that revelation provokes another response. I had a, had a response like that just yesterday uh, at a wedding that I had attended. And a wedding is a kind of a worship service. And as this wedding is going on, and uh, a younger worship leader that I've had the privilege of pouring into is leading a song that Jordan Coughlin, who's the worship leader at Redeemer Arlington, where Melissa and Sean were for a year. So again, all these weird connections. But as he sings, All I Have is Christ. And I'm singing it, holding my daughter, and harmonizing with my wife, and singing with this group of folks that all love Jesus and believe what we're singing. I had a revelation of, I saw, I I felt this connection to the truths of what I was singing. And it made me sing even more. It it made me tear up. And so these revelation and response things that happen in worship sometimes go back and forth. And we actually will see a little bit more of that. Because this model of revelation and response, it's a helpful way to understand what's happening in the narrative of today's passage. So keep these movements in mind as I read from the word of God. So usually we stand together as a congregation, but since this is a pretty long narrative passage, uh, you may remain seated. Unless you really want to stand up, then that's okay. Uh, But I'm reading from the ESV. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered them, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going to go further. And they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed 
and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were there with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So hopefully some of you remember the three most important things for studying the Bible. That would be uh, context, context, context. So, so who, is, who is Luke? Who is he writing to? Luke was a physician who understood a bit about humanity, you know, as a doctor. And he also understood the logic of the day. So Luke says in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, that he is seeking to provide an orderly account after he's investigated everything. So he's not cutting any corners. He's doing his homework. And Luke most likely received stories firsthand from some of the apostles and from Paul. And some of you might be thinking, wait, why does Paul matter? He's not in Luke. And you're mostly right. Because Luke actually wrote both the gospel according to Luke and Acts. And in some circles, you can actually refer to it as Luke Acts with a dash in between. And they can be read back to back for one big narrative of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and then the church I don't know why John is like all up in the middle of that, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit did that on purpose uh, to kind of give us a brain break, although John is not really a brain break if you've read John. Uh, But right in the middle is the book of John in between Luke and Acts, both written by Luke. There are several distinctives of Luke's gospel that are different. So Luke gives the most parables. So the prodigal son, the connected stories with that, they're here in Luke. Luke gives the birth narrative that we celebrate every Christmas. Matthew actually jumps just to the visit from the wise men. And Mark jumps straight to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then John jumps back to the beginning of all time. So Luke kind of situates it in the middle. A nice, nice happy medium. Jesus' actual birth. And Luke then parallels and contrasts Jesus' story with the history of Israel. And it's a really phenomenal narrative. It highlights the connections between Jesus as Messiah... And Israel's expectations, for one. And Luke also argues that Jesus is the heir to human destiny as well. Not just Jewish hopes. So the Bible is this magnificent book. And the more that you read it, the more things you're going to uncover as the Holy Spirit illuminates the text. So continue to set the stage. It's important to reference what just happened in this particular part of Luke's gospel. So Jesus just rose from the grave. The penalty of sin and the power of death, they've been broken. God's plan for restoration of the whole world and your heart has just begun. If that doesn't energize you, please wake up. Because that's a huge announcement. In the beginning of this chapter 24, Jesus isn't dead. He is alive. So let that energy from that momentum kind of carry you into where this story goes. Because now there's two disciples of Jesus. They potentially had followed him for months, maybe even years. But clearly they were part of things that had happened through this last week in Jerusalem. And now they're walking out of Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. And so there are some people 
There's some people who are like hardcore introverts who like to go walking on their own. I don't know about that. Because as many of you know, walking is typically better with others. I mean, clearly running a marathon or a half marathon or whatever your car sticker says is better with other people, right? Like, there's something about walking together. So Keisha and a group of ladies from Ballard Woods, they're notorious for walking together around the neighborhood in the morning. And sometimes this is much about the fellowship as it is about the actual exercise. Like they may need to get the Fitbit count right on their steps, but they're actually refreshed by spending time together as they walk. And Pastor Brad and Allison, they're at a retreat at The Cove where they actually heard this week from a songwriter and theologian named Michael Card. And Michael Card wrote a book that I read called The Walk, in which he recounts the lessons of life and discipleship that he learned while taking walks with his mentor, his discipler. They would go on this briskly paced walk and discuss life and theology and sometimes just be silent, but together on their walk. So this particular walk here in Luke 24 is definitely about fellowship more than about the journey home. They're not moving at a brisk pace. Their heads are bowed low. They're probably walking on autopilot because they're still processing what they had just seen. So they had seen Luke 23 and before. They had not seen the raised Jesus yet. And so this this narrative is so beautiful in that it plays with us as readers, our expectations. So we know they're not moving quickly because Jesus is able to catch up with them, right? And then we can guess that they're pretty lost in their conversation and thought because it seems like they let a stranger walk with them. And so this verse, verse 16, it's a bit of a mystery. Because the verb is in the passive tense. So it's not that they just didn't recognize him. But rather another agent, like the Holy Spirit, kept them from recognizing Jesus. I think we see why as revelation and response unfolds. So notice how Jesus' question then stops them in their tracks. What are you guys talking about? So the disciple who's named here, who Luke actually may have talked to in order to get this story, Cleopas asks, do you really have no idea what we're talking about? Uh, Do you have no idea what's happening? He's flabbergasted. You can hear that in his voice because all of Jerusalem was in turmoil over the events of the last week because Jesus, a week before, had entered into cheers, to palm branches, to Hosanna, and in seven days is being jeered is being cursed, is being brutally executed. So yeah, they're flabbergasted. Why, why didn't you know about this? But there's some things we can glean from how Cleopas tells the story. So he describes Jesus as a prophet mighty in word and deed. Let me pause here and clarify. If that's all that Jesus is to you, then you haven't, you haven't seen him yet. Jesus is a good teacher or a great example of love, and that's it. Please stick with me through the rest of this sermon. Please consider the testimony of Luke and of the apostles and and the rest of the book of Acts. But Cleopas and his friend, they're, they're quite sad, mentioning that Jesus is dead. It's been three days. The burial process is completed. So then, then he points out that the testimony of the women didn't quite convince them. And then even when some of the men went to verify the women's testimony, they didn't see Jesus sitting there waiting. So remember, okay, no one in history had been resurrected before. 
They had no frame of reference for this. Lazarus, who was raised a couple weeks before, he was resuscitated. The others that Jesus had raised from death, they were resuscitated. They would eventually have to die again, which I'm sure was no fun. But Jesus, he was resurrected. Nobody understood that. Nobody knew what to expect for that. They had no expectations. So Jesus' response to them is a little tongue-in-cheek. He says, how slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Remember, they just referred to him as a prophet. They said Jesus was a prophet. So Jesus is basically saying, you want to talk about prophets? You didn't even heed them. So here's the first instance of revelation in our text. In verse 27. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you even imagine how awesome that would be? I mean, this is a master class, literally from a master, on how to interpret the Old Testament. So beginning with Moses, and this means the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. When it says, and all the prophets, he's referring to the Nevi'im, which are the, the, the major and minor prophetic books. So this would have included Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, all that. And in colloquial speech, like as a turn of phrase, this phrase would also have implied Psalms and Proverbs and the other writings, the Ketuvim. So basically, Jesus gave them a walk to remember. See what I did there? Or actually a walk of of remembrance. Because he helped them remember rightly by giving them the missing puzzle piece. Himself. All of the messianic stuff in the scriptures, all the prophecy, it was clarified. So reading the Old Testament while knowing about Jesus is a little bit like watching the sixth sense the second time. It's like watching the Star Wars trilogy knowing up front that Vader is Luke's dad. It's like watching A Walk to Remember or any other Nicholas Sparks movie book. And instead of knowing that somebody's going to die, you know that someone's going to be resurrected at the end. The mystery has been revealed. It's Jesus. Jesus is the beautiful aha moment right here in the middle of their walk. And it's it's the aha moment for all of history All of creation. This is how God's going to make all things new. It's Jesus. So these two heard how every story whispers his name. I'd trade every minute of my seminary education for one minute of walking in that conversation. Actually, I don't really have to do that because... Because of Jesus' resurrection, like, I have a guarantee that I too will be resurrected if I follow him. And so I don't have to trade it. I can actually have a conversation with him and walk eventually. And I have so many questions. So that's going to be a long walk. This motif of explaining Jesus as Messiah from the Old Testament, it occurs in Acts as well. So Luke, with his reasoned approach to telling the story, he's clearly impressed by how the way the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so in Acts 17... It's clear that Paul employs this method when he goes into a synagogue. He doesn't bring a fancy new revelation. He doesn't say, hey, look at this new thing that I heard. He reasons with them from the Old Testament scriptures, which have been pointing to Jesus the whole time. So as Jesus himself teaches these two how to see the Messiah in the Old Testament, this first instance of revelation provokes response. So in verse 28, Jesus is just messing with them, okay? He's he's acting like he's going to keep going. 
knowing full well that both custom and their hunger would lead them to ask him to stay. For the people of God, for us in the church, there's an embedded expectation of hospitality. Both for the stranger and especially those for, of the household of God. Pastor Brad's actually going to touch on this in Hebrews 13 next week. So Jesus knew the customs of hospitality. Our hospitality to our brothers and sisters uh, and to our neighbor, whoever that might be. It's a picture of the gospel, really. So especially in our current culture and in our suburbs, <laughs> we go about our lives in our own personal space, in our yards, with polite waves and maybe some cookies when we first move in. Uh, but how, how often is it that our unbelieving neighbors show more hospitality than us? May this not be the case for Grace Community Church. Let all of us endeavor to open our homes to our church family and to the stranger according to God's will and as a means of modeling love and grace and compassion to our communities. But Jesus also knew that they had a hunger occurring on multiple levels. (laughs) So the travelers were physically hungry, obviously. They'd been walking seven miles. They were burning calories and they were keeping track on their Apple Watch so they knew they needed to eat. But while Jesus was teaching them, they experienced a ravenous hunger. They thirsted for living water because they'd been given a glimpse of the well. They hungered for the bread of life. Because they've been shown the word of God that satisfies beyond any food. So with this internal response of hunger, they then outwardly respond to Revelation by asking him to stay. Like it provokes them. And so in response, they want to linger in his presence. Have you ever felt that desire to just linger in his presence? Sometimes the presence of God is more tangible than others. Sometimes when we're gathered here on Sundays for worship. Sometimes in the mountains of North Carolina at TVR. Sometimes in the quiet of your own room when you've cried out to him. Do you feel that response? Do you want to linger with the Lord? When God reveals himself, we can't help but respond. The second revelation in our text occurs in verses 30 and 31. In the book of Luke, there are three really significant meals. The feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and the Emmaus table. And they each include the same process of Jesus taking the bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it to them. And at each of these meals, the feeding that happens is way more than those people expected, right? It's it's deep, it's transformative. The feeding of the 5,000, nobody expected that. The Last Supper, what would be nourished there? Nobody expected that. And these guys certainly did not expect what's about to happen here at this table with this meal. So first off, though, I want you to notice a really strange shift. Okay, Jesus is invited into their house, right? He's a guest. Okay, a guest doesn't take over your table, right? I mean, if if I'm going to roll over to Scott and Keisha's house, I'm not just going to walk in and begin saying, well, let me pray for the meal. And then, hey, I'll cut the ham and I'll pass the bread. Like, if I'm hovering and leading the table in their house, it's going to get a little awkward. Now, they're both, you know, so sweet southern people that it would be Scott to take me out back. But, like, (laughs) you don't walk in and lead as a guest, right? Of course, Jesus has just given this master class in biblical interpretation. So he's shown himself to be in a position of respect and even authority. 
But the hosts should be doing this. And yet it's Jesus who takes the bread and breaks it and blesses it and gives it to them. And what a revelation this meal is. Their eyes are open. I mean, here's one of those questions that I'm going to ask on my walk with Jesus. Is what was it that did it? Did the Spirit open their eyes as they beheld Jesus' scars? As he hands them the bread? Did, did his voice do it in the way that he prayed and blessed it? When they recognized the cadence? Or was it just the Holy Spirit simply opening their eyes? We don't know that this is exactly a Lord's Supper situation, but it's remarkably similar. And so it reminds us of the power of the Lord's table. And we're going to come to that next Sunday. Next week on the first Sunday of the month, we'll come to the table for the Lord's Supper. So between now and then, I would love for you to consider all that God may do in this really simple meal of bread and wine. Because at the Lord's table, our eyes may be open to the presence of Jesus. As he meets us there and and responds to us and reminds us that he gives himself for us. So this moment of revelation is full and rich and it's all too brief. Because just as their eyes grow wide with recognition, Jesus vanishes. So one of my favorite verses in all of scripture is their response to this revelation. And actually it's pointing to their response from the first revelation the whole time in the teaching of the Old Testament. Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures? They both look at each other and they're asking, did you, did you feel that too? <laughs> I can almost imagine them like pinching each other, smacking each other. Did you see that? Did that just happen? Are we awake? And once these two see Jesus, as the resurrected Savior is revealed to them, they immediately respond. At once, they rose and returned to Jerusalem, right? Adrenaline is probably propelling them as much as anything else. But when they saw Jesus and received revelation of Him, they responded at that moment and engaged the world. So Jesus exalted Himself in the Father's glorious plan by teaching them from the Scripture. And then Jesus nourished these believers by lingering with them and breaking bread with them. And they then responded by announcing this news that Jesus is alive. So when they get there, the 11 are already celebrating, right? Because Jesus has appeared to Peter. And so I wonder how the 11 first responded when Cleopas said, we already know he's alive. (laughs) They then proceed to tell those gathered that Jesus was recognized When? In the breaking of the bread. So not even in the giving, but in the breaking of the bread. Again, the importance of participating at the Lord's Supper for believers. So the response doesn't end there, though. It keeps going back and forth. And so I thought, went back and forth on how I was going to continue to unpack this. I just want to read the Bible. I hope that's okay. So we're going to keep reading from Luke 24. Because revelation and response continues through Luke 24. So hear the rest of this chapter. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. 
as you see that I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they're still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, he's going to prove it even further. Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened, his mind, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So notice in this section God's faithfulness to reveal the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is not hidden When he is raised, he is witnessed, he is seen, he is touched, he's hugged. He says, see and touch me, just like he does with Thomas. And then notice the response of those who see the resurrected Jesus. They continually worship. They couldn't stop. Luke doesn't even stop there. Like Luke continues to go into Acts. He continues the story, showing even more of this dialogue of revelation and response in God's interaction with his people. So as far as as application goes, read this chapter again with your families. Celebrate what God has done in Jesus. There's definitely a few things we can glean. One, Jesus is walking with you. And you may not know it. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. So you may have your head down, walking along, trying to process What just happened in your life. And Jesus is walking with you. He's ready through the power of the Holy Spirit to show you who he is through the word. And indeed, all scripture points to Jesus. He's the missing piece. He's the spoiler. He is the mystery revealed of how God's going to make things right. His perfect life and death in our place has absorbed God's wrath. His resurrection is a promise of all things being made new. His ascension is a promise that he's going to return. So Lord, come soon. And when God reveals himself, what's your response? If this morning is the first time that you've heard the news kind of laid out for you, you've heard the implications of Jesus' resurrection, how are you going to respond? You can't hear this and ignore it. You can't see the risen Jesus and just leisurely finish your meal or drink your coffee. If you see the risen Jesus while you're drinking coffee, it's a spit take. If God is calling you today to confess and repent, then do it. Be saved. If God has called you and you've made a profession of faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, then today his mercies are new. And we can live in light of who we are in Christ. And lastly, if your heart is burning, tell someone. If you've encountered Jesus, 
If you've had the scriptures opened up to you, if you've known God's grace, if you've experienced his mercy, tell somebody. How can you not? We exalt Jesus because we have heard the gospel and have seen his work in our lives. We establish believers by reminding each other what he's done, is doing, and will do. And we engage the world with this news because God's revelation demands that we respond. Would you pray with me?